Our text is from Isaiah chapter 19, verse 21. In past uh, sermons in this series, we have uh, looked at this text before, but we've not used it as a text for a sermon, but I I do want to draw from it uh, information with regard to the matter that is before us today. Isaiah chapter 19 verse 21 And the Lord shall be known to Egypt and the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day and shall do sacrifice and oblation yea they shall vow a vow unto the Lord and perform it. In our last uh, sermon or lecture and hard to know what to call these most recent uh, I do try to preach uh, from a text a little bit at the beginning though we do go into more historical analysis uh, later on in the sermon and so that it, it is it does have a text from which I am preaching though it may be very abbreviated but last time we considered the moral nature and scriptural duties found in the solemn league and covenant For if what is promised to be performed in the Solemn League and Covenant is not a moral duty found in God's word, yea, is even contrary to God's word, then there can be no moral duty to own the Solemn League and Covenant as obliging upon anyone. We, however, are convinced and have addressed this matter in the last lecture that the Solemn League and Covenant is morally obliging because the duties found in it are biblical. Remember that the religious goal of the Solemn League and Covenant was not a mere confederation of churches from England, Ireland, and Scotland working together in brotherly love, but further than this, The Solemn League and Covenant and the duties contained therein promote a unity based upon uniformity in doctrine, worship, government, and discipline. Dear ones, we are not praying for a confederation of churches. We have plenty of confederation of churches today, denominations, confederations of various groups, of churches, but is not bringing the church together in one doctrine, worship, government, or discipline. What we are praying for is unity in churches, a unity based upon both love and the truth, a unity based upon uniformity in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government. Any other view? Any other view of ecclesiastical unity, I submit to you, is a lie. It is not unity. It is a mere confederation. I would submit it is, in fact, a conspiracy. A conspiracy against true unity. In a marriage, there is a confederation of persons to be joined as husband and wife. However, unity, not mere confederation, 
of a husband and wife, but unity in a marriage only comes where there is unity in love and in the truth. That is where there is a like-mindedness in doctrine, worship, discipline, and church government. It is to practice, to believe and practice the principles that we find are articulated by Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.10 where he says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. One in love and one in the truth. How many marriages sadly have become a mere confederation of convenience rather than a union of love and truth? And the difference between these two types of marriages, I believe, is evident to all. The blessedness of true unity and love and truth and the misery of confederation for convenience sake. Moving on to the matter that is before us today, we have another objection that we want to respond to. It is objected by some that the Solemn League and Covenant is not a covenant made directly with God, but only a covenant made with men. This objection denies that God was one of the parties in the Solemn League and Covenant but rather affirms that the parties were only the three kingdoms of England, Ireland, and Scotland. Now we have maintained in this series of sermons and lectures that the Solemn League and Covenant was made by the three kingdoms as one party collectively and directly with God as the other party. Those promoting this objection have no problem in saying that God was a witness to the Solemn League and Covenant, but they deny that this covenant was made with God and that God was a party to the covenant or in the covenant. This objection emphasizes the distinction between a vow and an oath. A vow is a lawful and moral promise made directly unto God. An oath is a lawful and moral promise made unto men wherein a specific appeal to God is made to bear witness to the promises made between fellow human beings. And so this objection would say that the three kingdoms took an oath to appeal to God to witness the moral promises being made but that is all they did however throughout the series of sermons and lectures that we have been giving it has been steadfastly maintained that the three kingdoms collectively as one moral person vowed a national vow unto the Lord now I do believe and we'll comment upon this later on in the sermon lecture today, I do believe the three kingdoms also made covenant with one another. And the king with the the kingdoms. And the kingdoms with the king. And called God to witness that as well. 
But there is nothing inconsistent in saying that the three kingdoms both vowed a national covenant unto the Lord in the Solemn League and Covenant and also within the Solemn League and Covenant called God to witness by an oath that they made with one another. Just as Israel did in Deuteronomy 29.14. You turn there, you will see that God says that it was both a covenant, uh, a vow, and an oath that was made in that covenant at Mount Sinai. There was a, a vow made to God, a national covenant made with God, a, a vow, but it also mentions the word oath as well. And so it is certainly possible to have in one covenant both a vow to God and an oath between various parties all in the same covenant and this again we'll demonstrate in a few minutes we shall first consider from the scripture a particular national covenant that we find in Isaiah 19 and the second main point we shall review some historical testimony confirming that the solemn league and covenant was indeed made directly with God and so the very first main point, God is one party in the national vow of Egypt in Isaiah 19.21. Again, in Isaiah 19.21 we read, And the Lord shall be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day, and shall do sacrifice and oblation. Yea, they shall vow a vow unto the Lord, and perform it now the reason I chose this text was because it not only gives us biblical truth concerning a national vow but also because it gives us biblical truth concerning a Gentile nation namely Egypt that will yet in the future millennium unite as one moral person in covenanting directly with God as a nation it is important to note this is not Israel that is in engaging itself in a national covenant with God this is not Israel this is Egypt a Gentile nation that does so or shall do so it is in fact I would submit typical of what will occur throughout the whole world when the Lord restores his ancient covenanted people of Israel and brings in the fullness of the Gentiles as we read in Romans chapter 11. Let me then gather certain truths from this text for our better understanding of a national covenant made with God. Isaiah 19 is a prophecy directed to Egypt it foretells various events that the Lord will bring upon this nation in the future now I do not have time to expound the whole chapter but in the former part of the chapter we see the righteous judgment God shall bring upon Egypt and I want to emphasize this as a nation he's not going to bring it upon a small minority of the people within Egypt but he's going to bring judgment upon them as a nation and in the latter part of the chapter we see the gracious blessing God shall bring upon Egypt and again emphasize this as a nation 
Just as he brings judgment upon them as a nation, so he will bring blessing upon them as a nation. Now this has obviously not been fulfilled at this point uh, in its full, complete fulfillment with regard to Egypt as a nation. Even though the gospel has gone into Egypt, uh, as we meet even today, it's gone into Egypt, and Christ has brought some Egyptians to himself. That's not the fulfillment of this prophecy. It has in view something far greater to a much more significant degree where the nation as a whole covenants with the Lord. This prophecy is therefore yet to be fulfilled in the future time of millennial blessing wherein Christ will reign from his throne in heaven over the world in a glorious way. He is doing so now, but he will do so in a more manifest and glorious way than he has demonstrated visibly up to this point. As we move to verse 18 of Isaiah 19, we note the words, in that day. This is a future time of promised salvation that is to come upon the entire nation of Egypt. This does not foretell the salvation, as I said, of a small group of people living within Egypt, but the conversion of the vast majority of the nation of Egypt to Christ and also as an official national covenant made with God. Note that this prophecy speaks here in this verse uh, 18, speaks of five cities in Egypt, speaking, quote, the language of Canaan, while one city shall be called, quote, the city of destruction, in the same verse, verse 18. To speak the language of Canaan would be a way of saying that Egypt will speak the same truths in the same way, that is, by way of uniformity, as God's people Israel will do. And in other words, they will be covenanted together with Assyria, as are the three kingdoms of England, Ireland, and Scotland in the Solemn League and Covenant. In like manner, in the future, Israel, Egypt, and Assyria will be covenanted together. They will speak the language of Canaan. They will have that highway, as we will see later on in the, uh, in the chapter, going from one city to the next, from, one, from uh, one nation to the next, from Israel to Assyria, from Assyria to Egypt, indicating there will be that, that oneness communion, unity that they will bear in that time of millennial blessing. It would seem that in the future day of worldwide reformation that Christ will bring, which I should just indicate may be within our lifetime, or if not within our own lifetime, within the lifetime of our children. This may be, these may be events that are not far distant but are very close within a matter of, of a, a few years that we could begin to see these types of things happening by God's grace. What we see though by way of the five cities 
who speak the language of Canaan in Egypt and the one city of destruction is that five out of the six cities apparently will swear a national covenant to the Lord of hosts. In other words, a great majority of those within Egypt will own the Lord and covenant with him. Even if there are a, a, a small minority, they will be destroyed. They will be removed. They will be called the city of destruction for their rebellion against Christ and against his covenanted reformation. Note that the, the scripture states that Egypt will, in this verse 18, will swear to the Lord of hosts. They will swear to the Lord of hosts. Swearing to the Lord of hosts, dear ones, is a vow. And not simply an oath, whereby we swear by the Lord of hosts. To swear to the Lord of hosts is a vow. To swear by the Lord of hosts, to swear by his name, to call him a witness to what we are uh, saying, promising in an oath, uh, is uh, again, an oath as opposed to a vow. In other words, this swearing by Egypt in its national capacity will be a national vow wherein Egypt is one party and God is the party to whom the vow is made. He is, he is, he's the first party. Egypt is the second party. Egypt as a nation will swear to be God's people and God will own Egypt as a nation as, quote, my people as we see in chapter 19, verse 25, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. Secondly, from the text here in Isaiah 19, we note in this prophecy the national uniformity in religion. Not various denominations, not independent churches, but one church within Egypt, one uh, doctrine, worship, discipline, and church government within Egypt. And that's indicated in verses 19 through 20, where it says, In that day sh shall there be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar at the border thereof to the Lord. And that shall be for a sign and for a witness unto the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they shall cry unto the Lord because of the oppressors. And he shall send them a Savior and a great one. And he shall deliver them. Namely, Christ being spoken of. <clears throat> the fact that there is only mentioned here one quote, altar to the Lord in the midst of Egypt, in verse 19, speaks of the same type of uniformity and religion that was practiced by Israel, which also was to have only one appointed altar in the temple for the uniform doctrine, worship, discipline, and government of the Lord. And so the one altar speaks of the uniformity as in Israel, so it will be in Egypt. One altar unto the Lord. One religion. One true religion within Egypt. 
That's so amazing to imagine. A nation now committed totally to Islam will covenant with the Lord and perhaps relatively few years what a mighty work the Lord will do when he accomplishes this. This could happen again within our lifetimes. But this is what is prophesied and promised to occur. Thirdly, from our text in Isaiah 19, the Lord reveals through his prophet Isaiah more information about the national covenant of Egypt in verse 21. There the Lord will make himself known to Egypt in opening its eyes to the truth. Even as God must open the eyes of us all because we are all spiritually blind and cannot see and understand the truth of Christ due to the total depravity of our faculties, so will God open the eyes of Egypt as a nation to behold the glories of Christ whom they will embrace as a people. And those obstinately refusing to do so who stubbornly resist this covenanted reformation, who will, rather than promote it, seek to hinder it, will be destroyed and punished, according to the word of the Lord. They will become a city of destruction. Moreover, the Egyptians, as a united people, will, quote, vow a vow unto the Lord and perform it, according to Isaiah 19.21. Again, note that when a national covenant is stated to be made with God, it is to, quote, vow a vow unto the Lord. When God is one party in a covenant, that is a vow, the prepositional phrases most commonly used are to the Lord, unto the Lord, or with the Lord. Those prepositional phrases communicate that God is engaged as a party in that covenant. These phrases can be found in passages like these. Many, many passages, but let me give you three that you can write down and look up at your leisure. Deuteronomy 29.12 2 Chronicles 29.10 in Numbers 30, verse 2. Now, when God is not a party to a covenant, but is called to witness the oath made between human beings, the prepositional phrases most commonly used are by the Lord, in the presence of the Lord, or in the name of the Lord. We find, again, various places in the scripture where this is mentioned. For example, Deuteronomy 10.20, Joshua 9.18, Nehemiah 13.25, and Isaiah 65.16, just to note a representative group of scriptural references. Finally, from Isaiah chapter 19, note from this very brief survey of this chapter that it is clear that 
Egypt has engaged itself in covenant with the Lord for the effect of this national covenant is that Egypt as a national entity becomes the people of God according to Isaiah 19.25 where again we read when the Lord of hosts shall bless saying blessed be Egypt my people you see this was the title given the covenant name given to Israel at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19.5 they were called my people by way of the national covenant they are referred to God refers to them as my people and so likewise he shall refer to and call Egypt my people because they will be in covenant with him and he will own them to be his people and they will own him to be their God. Incidentally, God calls the former enemy of Israel Assyria likewise in verse 25. He calls Assyria the work of my hands, which is also, interestingly, the covenant name God has given to his people Israel. uh, As we see in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 21, notice there that Israel likewise is given the covenant name the work of my hands. Isaiah 60 verse 21 says thy people this is speaking to the people of Israel thy people also shall be all righteous they shall inherit the land forever the branch of my planting the work of my hands that I may be glorified they are called the work of his hands and we know this to be referring to Israel because earlier in verse 16 of the same chapter Isaiah 60 verse 16 Israel is distinguished from the Gentiles where it says thou shalt also suck the milk of the Gentiles and shalt suck the breast of kings and thou shalt know that I the Lord am thy Savior and thy Redeemer the mighty one of Jacob so where we see Israel distinguished from the Gentiles it is a pretty clear indication that we are seeing a prophecy related to Israel now what we have sought just to do here uh, as we move to the second point I want to just uh, summarize what we've sought to demonstrate from scripture is that covenants made with God wherein God is a party to the covenant made use certain prepositions for example the prepositions to, unto, and with Whereas oaths made with fellow men, fellow human beings, wherein God is called to be a witness, use different kind of language, use prepositions that uh, like by, by the Lord of hosts, or in, as in the name of the Lord of hosts, or as in the presence of the Lord of hosts. Hopefully this will be helpful as we move briefly to the next main point where we seek historical testimony to make more clear whether God was in fact viewed in the covenant, the solemnly covenant, viewed to be a party or not in that covenant. And so let us move to the second main point briefly 
God is one party in the solemn league and covenant. Now perhaps you are asking why it is even important whether God is actually one of the parties to the solemn league and covenant or not. Perhaps you're asking what difference does it make whether God is a party to the covenant or whether he is simply called to be a witness to the covenant. Well, it does make a difference as we'll see. Um, However, let me just qualify that by saying in one sense there is no real difference as to the perpetual obligation of the Solemn League and Covenant to all posterity whether God is whether God is a party to the covenant or simply called to be a witness to the covenant. Let me cite this for you. The oath that was made with the Gibeonites in Joshua chapter 9 was of a moral and of a perpetual obligation to all posterity even though this covenant was not made directly with God wherein God was a party to the covenant but rather was made with men and God called to be a witness to the covenant as we see in Joshua chapter 9 verses 18 through 20 there it's called an oath and there it is said that it was made with the Gibeonites for God judges Israel as we see in the scripture God judges Israel some 500 years later during the reign of David for Saul's violation of the covenant made with the Gibeonites in 2 Samuel 21.1 it certainly was a binding covenant upon posterity even though it was an oath as opposed to a vow it appears that those, however, who frame this objection against God being a party in the Solemn League and Covenant believe that if the Solemn League and Covenant is an oath between the three kingdoms only, an oath between the three kingdoms, wherein God is called to be a witness and not a covenant made directly with God, it would seem this, obliga- or this uh, objection would be uh, arguing or seeking to contend that the obligations of the covenant may be terminated because of the faithlessness and covenant breaking of the three kingdoms. Thus, according to this reasoning, it would make the Solemn League and Covenant non-obligatory upon posterity because it would cease to be a binding covenant due to the unfaithfulness of all the parties involved. As I said earlier, even if, which I do not grant, the Solemn League and Covenant was only a national oath and not a national vow, it may still be argued that the national oath, that national oaths may be perpetually binding upon posterity in all the moral duties contained in it per the national oath Israel made with the Gibeonites in Joshua chapter 9. That, I think, is one possible reason why this objection is made. They think that if it's only an oath between nations that are all unfaithful, that turn their backs upon it, basically the oath goes into oblivion. 
However, if the Solemn League and Covenant is a national vow made directly with God by the three kingdoms, and a covenant that binds all posterity, it is impossible to make the covenant and the moral duties found in it to be null and void, for God is the party to whom the vow is made. He will never be unfaithful in a covenant. So such a covenant can never be rescinded because of his unfaithfulness. And he will always hold us to fulfill our lawful vows made to him. No matter where we go on the face of this planet, he is the universal governor and Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth, the princes of the earth and will hold us to our covenant made with him. No matter how many hundreds of years pass, God is from everlasting to everlasting, and he will be there to require the lawful covenants of fathers upon their children. No matter if every human being in the nation forgets the covenant made with God, he is omniscient, and he does not forget no matter how much the covenant is trampled under the feet by the whole nation who break it. He is absolutely righteous and owns the covenant as his. There is no way to escape lawful covenants made directly with God, even to all the posterity included in that covenant. And it is my suspicion that this is why this objection is made to God being a party to the covenant. Well, let us consider the words in the Solemn League and Covenant that identify it as a national vow made directly to God, thus making the eternal God a party to this covenant. These words occur at the very end of the preface. And these are the words. Wherein we all subscribe and each one of us for himself and with our hands lifted up to the Most High God do swear. End of quote. And then follows that which is sworn to the Most High God as indicated by the hands lifted up to him. We, sh- we shall also note that, <clears throat> that uh, this finds very credible testimony, what I just indicated. In just a, a moment, we'll look at that credible testimony. Also note that at the end of the Solemn League and Covenant, God is called to witness what is stated there as well in these words. We profess and declare before God and the world. The world is called to witness. God is called to witness the oath that is made between the nations as well. Thus, the Solemn League and Covenant is both a national vow and a national oath, and both terms are used by the original framers and subscribers to the Solemn League and Covenant, both a vow and oath. Well, let us now hear the historical testimony of those who originally framed and subscribed the Solemn League and Covenant, those living at that time, in that generation. Let's start with a faithful covenanting minister. A minister of the Church of Scotland who took the Solemn League and Covenant. 
John Guthrie preached this sermon upon breach of the Solemn League and Covenant in 1663. And I quote, Objection 3. He's answering an objection at this point. This is the objection. Objection 3. The Solemn League and Covenant must be broken because we are not bound to keep with them that broke to us first. But it is so betwixt us and England. Ergo, therefore, we're not bound to it. Answer. Are there not many making this objection who I dare say never read the covenant? Thou poor blind creature, how darest thou speak of it? These that will say so, it seems they never understood the League and Covenant, because it is not a bargain betwixt two parties on earth, the one whereof breaking, the other is free. But these three lands are one party, and the God of heaven is the other party. Therefore, though England should break, should Scotland also break the covenant? It is not after this tenor. We will endeavor reformation in these lands, but if you break, we will break also. No, it is each man swearing for himself that he shall in his place and station endeavor reformation so that if it were left all to one man, he must endeavor reformation. For consider the last words of the article. Each of them for himself did lift up his hands to the Most High. And so these lands are one party and the other party is the God of heaven. End of quote. But someone may object, John Guthrie was not a member or a commissioner to the Westminster Assembly. So he may be misinformed about the covenant being made with God. Well, let's consider the words of some of the members and or commissioners to the Westminster Assembly. Did they understand that the Solemn League and Covenant was made directly with God? Joseph Carl, a member of the Westminster Assembly, gave this sermon at Westminster at that public convention ordered by the Honorable House of Commons for the taking of the covenant by all such of all degrees as willingly presented themselves upon Friday, October 6, 1643. The House of Commons, incidentally, before, he, before whom he preached this sermon, the House of Commons in England thanked Carl, Carl for the sermon and ordered its publication. These are his words, quote, And this covenant is the bond of a twofold union. First, it unites us of this kingdom among ourselves and this kingdom with the other two. Second, it makes a special union of all those who shall take it holily and sincerely throughout the three kingdoms with the one most, God. Probably a word that's missing there, uh, the one most high God. Weak things, he continues, weak things bound together are strong much more than 
when strong are bound up with the strong, most of all when strong are bound up with Almighty. And therefore I reckon this the least part of our strength that these three strong kingdoms will be united by this covenant. Nay, if this were all the strength which this union were like to make, I should reckon this no strength at all. Wherefore, know that this covenant undoubtedly is and will be a bond of union between strong and almighty, between three strong nations and an almighty God. This covenant engages more than man. God also is engaged. End of quote. Edmund Calamy, a member of the Westminster Assembly, gave this sermon on January 14, 1645, before the then Lord Mayor of the City of London, Sir Thomas Adams, together with the sheriffs, aldermen, and common council of the said city, being the day of their taking the Solemn League and Covenant at Michael Bassenshaw, London. And he states, in his sermon this the solemnity and weightiness of covenant taking consisted in three things number one because it is made with the glorious majesty of heaven and earth who will not be trifled and baffled with all and therefore what Jehoshaphat said to his judges quote take heed what ye do for ye judge not for men but for the Lord who is with within the judgment. Wherefore now, let the fear of the Lord be upon you, and the like I may say to everyone that enters into covenant this day, take heed what ye do, for it is the Lord's covenant, and there is no iniquity with the Lord. But since these members that I've quoted these members of the Westminster Assembly did not actually author the covenant. Perhaps they did not properly understand the parties who were engaged in it. Well, Alexander Henderson gave this address to the House of Commons and to the Westminster Assembly before taking the covenant, and which address was published again by the order of the House of Commons. It has their imprimatur, their stamp of approval, Henderson is usually credited with, with, credited with having been the original author of the Solemn League and Covenant. He was a minister of the Church of Scotland, one of the commissioners from Scotland. He writes in his sermon, quote, When a people began to forget God, he lifted up his hand against them and smited them. And when his people humble before him lift up their hands not only in supplication but in covenant before the most high God he is pleased such is his mercy and wonderful compassion first to lift his hand unto them saying I am the Lord your God as we have it three times in two verses of the 20th of Ezekiel and next he stretcheth out his hands against his enemies and theirs. It is the best work of faith to join in covenant with God. 
the best work of love and Christian communion to join in covenant with the people of God. End of quote. But perhaps I hear the objection that these were only members of the com- uh, or, uh, and or commissioners to the Westminster Assembly. They don't speak for the whole Westminster Assembly. Consider the following words of exhortation by the Westminster Assembly to all those who subscribe the Solemn League and Covenant. This is from the Westminster Assembly, and I quote, And that same God who, but even as yesterday, vouchsafed to disperse and scatter those dark clouds and fogs which overshadowed that loyal and religious kingdom of Scotland, and to make their righteousness to shine as clear as the sun at noonday, in the very eyes of their greatest enemies, will doubtlessly stand by all those who with singleness of heart and a due sense of their own sins and a necessity of reformation shall now enter into an everlasting covenant with the Lord never to be forgotten. A covenant with the Lord never to be forgotten. Exhortation by the Westminster Assembly. But there arises another objection soon afterwards, namely that the Westminster Assembly was no official church court, but rather a synod of men gathered by the Parliament to advise them. Let us hear the words then of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. In 1649, quote, Although there were none in the one kingdom who did adhere to the covenant, Yet thereby were not the other kingdom, nor any person in either of them, absolved from the bond thereof. Since in it we have not only sworn by the Lord, remember, just uh, stopping for a moment, by the Lord is an oath. They're saying, we not only did so, we not only swore by the Lord in an oath, but, and I, I continue now, quote, but also covenanted with him. It is not the failing of one or more that can absolve others from their duty or tie to him. Besides the duties therein contained being in themselves lawful and the grounds of our tie therein to moral, though others do forget their duty, yet doth not their defections free us from that obligation which lies upon us by the covenant in our places and stations. And the covenant being intended and entered into by these kingdoms as one of the best means of steadfastness for guarding against declining times, it were strange to say that the backsliding of any should absolve others from the tie thereof, especially seeing our engagement therein is not only national, but also personal. Everyone with uplifted hands swearing by himself, as it is evident by the tenor of the covenant. From these and other important reasons, it may appear that all these kingdoms joining together to abolish that oath by law, Notice there it is called, uh, interject, it's called there an oath. 
uh, which again it goes back and forth because it was both a vowel and an oath. Continuing on now. <clears throat> Yet could they not dispense therewith, much less can one of them or any part in either of them do the same. The dispensing with oaths hath hitherto been abhorred as anti-Christian and never practiced and avowed by any but by that man of sin. Therefore those who take the same upon them as they join with him in his sin, so must they expect to partake of his plagues. That was the Westminster, I'm, I'm sorry, yeah, the West, Westminster, uh, um, the uh, Church of Scotland, General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. Well, now the voice of the objector grows weaker and weaker. But we still hear this faint voice that it's not yet sufficient because the General Assembly is only a church court and not a civil court. Well, let's then hear the exhortation of the English Parliament to all those subscribing the Solemn League and Covenant in the, exhort in the exhortation to take the covenant in February 1644 where the Parliament states... The Honorable House of Parliament, the Assembly of Divines, the renowned City of London, and multitudes of other persons of all ranks and quality in this nation, and the whole body of Scotland have all sworn it, rejoicing at the oath so graciously seconded from heaven. God will doubtless stand by all those who with singleness of heart shall now enter into an everlasting covenant with the Lord. An everlasting covenant with the Lord. That's the Parliament of England. Well, finally, there is one last objection. And it's barely able to mutter out the objection. So many different uh, pieces of testimony have come forth that the covenant was made with God. There's one last objection. The king. Charles II. What about the king? On January the 1st, 1651, at his coronation, did he understand the covenant to be made with God? Well, before he took the covenant, it was first preached. It was first preached to the king on that day by the Reverend Robert Douglas. The following... Quote, for our king is not only to be crowned but to renew a covenant with God and his people. Answerable hereto there is a twofold covenant in the words. One between God and the king and the people. God being the one party. The king and the people the other. Another, that is another covenant between the king and the and the people, the king being the one party and the people the other. And before Charles II was granted the exercise of his royal rule and authority, he took the solemn Lincoln covenant, lifting up his right hand to God, and did swear his approbation of the solemn Lincoln covenant to God. Not until there is contrary testimony to overturn what has been presented herein will we move and be moved from our position that the Solemn League and Covenant is a national covenant and vow 
engaging the everlasting God as the first party in that covenant. Dear ones, how solemn and sacred indeed is such a covenant in which God owns it as his own and perpetual covenant that will never be forgotten to all posterity. God grant us his special grace to own it as a divine privilege and as an awesome responsibility to be under the bonds of such a covenant. For the Lord our God will require it and will himself cause it to be owned by all of the posterity so bound. For just as Egypt will vow as a nation unto the Lord, and God will own Egypt as his people, even as, even as they own God as their God, so shall the United States and Canada do likewise as the posterity of England, Ireland, and Scotland in that future millennial period of blessing. Amen. Let us stand in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank Thee and praise Thee again for the clarity of Thy truth in Scripture as well as the evidence that Thou hast provided in Thy kindness in history to confirm, Lord, so that we are not left in any doubt as to whom, who are the parties in this covenant. O Lord our God, we thank Thee. And because, Lord, it is a great privilege to be Thy people by way of the covenant of grace and also by way of this national covenant, Lord, we humble ourselves before Thee. We pray then covenantally for this nation for it is a covenant breaking not only a covenant rejecting nation but a covenant breaking nation and ask Lord that thou would restore us unto the covenant of our forefathers for we do ask Lord these things in Christ's name Amen This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T-6-L-3-T-5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, 
commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart. From his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.